0: you bow with me? Father, I'm glad that we can be here, and I'm very thankful for each one that you've brought, and Lord, I ask that you would please do what only you can do, and that speak to our hearts in such a way that we are convinced, that we are convicted, Lord, and for some that need to still come to faith that they are converted. Father, I pray, of course, that you would not only Move in our hearts to convince us of the truth, but then that you would also move in our hearts to give us the ability to walk in that truth. And I pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased to do it through the preaching of the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you very much for coming this morning. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, verses 17 through 27, is where we're going to be today, which we'll get to in just a moment. But Let me start off with this. The Lord really discourages fence-sitting. Let me start off with that statement. The Lord really discourages fence-sitting. What do I mean by that? Though mankind sometimes thinks he can be neutral when it comes to the Lord and still be fine, the Bible consistently shows otherwise. I've known many people who wouldn't say they hate the Lord and who wouldn't say with their mouths that they hate Jesus and who would not say that they, that they hate the Bible. But they also don't want much to do with the Lord and they don't want very much to do with Jesus and they really don't want much to do with the Bible. They sort of think they're taking a, a neutral stance to it all. I don't necessarily hate it, but I don't necessarily love it Either, and that's a safe place to be, no. The truth is they never, of course, burn a Bible. They have enough respect for the Word of God to never, never say, I'm going to burn one, and I think that's okay. But at the same time, they would never give enough respect to the Bible to live according to what it says, One example of the Lord discouraging fence-sitting is a very well-known portion in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. In chapter 3, the angel of God, he encourages John to write to these different churches. And one of those churches gets this message from Jesus. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Lord would rather you, listen to this, the Lord would rather you totally hate him or totally love him. He, he wants us to choose a side. I'm sure as you know, Joshua is the book that precedes the book of Judges in the Old Testament. You might Remember that when Joshua was getting old and he was about to die, he has something he wants to say to the people of Israel. He, he renews the covenant with them. He, he makes them listen to what he has to say when it comes to the things of God and say, you've, you've got to choose a side, people. And he says this in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river and among the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Part of that statement, he was telling them, I know what you're going to do in the future. I know that you're not going to be fully devoted to the Lord. In the future. And he tells them, but today, for, for me, today, here in the present, I'm going to serve the Lord. I choose to serve the Lord. He chose a side and was encouraging them to do likewise. And I've titled today's message, Choosing Aside, because that's what we're gonna see. Um, that Gideon becomes convinced that it is indeed the Lord who's speaking with him. And because of that knowledge, he finds that that new knowledge requires him to make a decisive choice in this section of Scripture. So if you've got your Bibles open, look with me at Judges 6, verses 17 through 27, and just follow along while I read. If you did not bring your Bible with you, the text should be on the screen behind me as well. This is what it says. And he said to him, "...if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me." Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizorites. That next That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it, he did it by night. This is the word of God. After hearing... The angel of the Lord speaks such marvelous things to him that we heard about in last Sunday's message, because this is just a continuation of a conversation that Gideon is having with this figure, the angel of the Lord, which we said last week, he's a very mysterious figure because he often appears in the scriptures as a man, speaks on behalf of the Lord, and then speaks as if he is the Lord, and we can only call this a theophany. That comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and it's just an appearance of God in the Old Testament. Some people even might say though we don't have hard proof that we can put with this. Some people even call these sometimes Christophanies, which means it's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Children, pre-incarnate just means Christ before he's in the flesh, Christ before he's born of the Virgin Mary. Either way, the text is very clear, this is the Lord. It uses language like that. It's, that's un, unmistakable. So after hearing and being convinced that this person who I'm speaking to is saying some magnificent things to me, he wants to know if this is really coming from God, though. In verse 17, he wants some type of sign. Listen to what Warren Wearsby said about verse 17. He said, when you review God's gracious promise to Gideon, You wonder why this man wavered in his faith. God promised to be with him. God called him a mighty man of valor and promised that he would save Israel from the Midianites and smite them as one man. God's word is the word of faith, and faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But Gideon didn't receive that word and needed assurance beyond the character of Almighty God. This turns out to be, unfortunately, one of Gideon's uh, nagging flaws, and we'll see uh, next week again that this comes up for Gideon again. He, He needs convincing, more convincing beyond just hearing it from God's mouth. He's never convinced enough simply by hearing the word of God, and Gideon always wants a little more evidence, and God is gracious to give it to him, but it's also quite an insult to God to demand a sign from him when he's already told you something is true. How is it an insult? Why would I go so far as to say that? Because that's quite a bold statement, isn't it? For me to say, it's an insult to ask God for a sign. Well, it's an insult because isn't God enough? Aren't all his perfections enough? Aren't all his mighty works of old enough? Isn't what he's done for you And I, by sending his son Jesus Christ to shed his blood and die and take the punishment that we deserve upon the cross, isn't that enough? And isn't the resurrection of Jesus, isn't the fact that there's an empty tomb in Israel, isn't that enough? Why do we think we need more than simply taking God at his word? Doubting Thomas was kind of like getting in that way too, wasn't he? And what did Jesus say to Thomas? Thomas once he revealed himself to him, once he showed him the scars on his hands and the scar in his side, what did he say to Thomas? Did he say, you know, don't worry about it, Thomas. It's, it's all good. Is that what he said? No, he says this. Have you believed because you've seen, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. You're in a more blessed state by God Almighty when you simply take him at his word. I mean, isn't it, isn't it even a slight insult to a human being? If a human being says to you, guess what? This happened. And you say, really? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not so sure. And you're like, yes, really. And the person's like, mm, don't think so. I think you're being false. I think you are not telling me the truth. I want to see it for myself. I mean, it's even slightly an insult when somebody does that to you. You think, seriously? You don't believe me? Now, if you're always poking fun at each other, I guess that's a different story, you know, siblings or something like that. But adult to adult, it's a little insulting. So why would we ask God for a sign? when it's very clear, if he lays it out in his word. So after Gideon asked for a sign, though, he realizes nonetheless that this is no ordinary visitor. He wants a sign, is it, is it really you who's speaking to me? Nonetheless, he does this in verse 18. Please don't depart from here until I've come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I'll stay until you return. So in order to show proper hospitality here, Gideon wants to prepare this individual, Emil, this person who's just come up really almost out of nowhere and says, the Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. Remember from last week. Even though these were uh, lean times for the people of Israel. Remember, the enemies of Israel had been invading Israel again and again and again. They take all their crops, they take all their goods. The people of Israel are forced to run off and hide in caves and they're just, they just keep being looted again and again. And again, even though times are very lean, Gideon uses what's called an ephah of flour. Now, I know all of you know the exact measurement of an ephah. <laughs> of course, we don't. How much is that? Well, I'll tell you this it's enough to make enough bread for an entire family for several days. Okay, Gideon was very generous with this gift, uh, which showed. It showed he highly regarded the visitor. At least that. But things are actually only going to go up from here when it comes to his regard for this visitor. They're going to go way up. They're even literally going to go up because they're going to even go up in flames. Let me read to you verses 19 through 21 again. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and brought it to them under the terebinth. That's a type of tree. And presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put on this rock, pour the broth over them. He did so. The angel of the Lord reached out the the tip of his staff and touched it, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat in the unleavened cakes, and then the angel of the Lord vanishes. The fire appearing out of a rock to consume this, it's, it's, it's a picture of the altar of God, the holy altar of God consuming a sacrifice. That's exactly what it's a picture of. This is... An, this is received by God something akin to an offering and he consumes it with fire. So the, the appearing of the fire and then the disappearing of the angel of the Lord causes Gideon to believe beyond a doubt that this was indeed the angel of God, the angel of the Lord who was speaking to him. Now, Gideon's response is proper, a little amusing, but it also shows that he also believes something that he was told in the past. Look at verses 22 and 23, because Gideon acknowledges that Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, but the Lord said to him, Now notice, the, this angel has already vanished. We're told that in the previous verse. But then we're told in verse 23, verse, um, yes, 23, that the angel speaks. So now the angel's speaking, and he's not even there. Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. You shall not die. Gideon acknowledges that he saw the Lord and becomes afraid. The Lord calms his fears. But what's this business about, you shall not die? Why did Gideon think he might die? Because the angel says, you're not going to die, calm down, peace be to you. Why did Gideon think that he's about to take his last breath, perhaps? Well, remember from last week, the angel approaches Gideon, peace be to you. God be with you, O mighty man of valor. And that's when Gideon starts to vent a little bit. If God's with us, then why is all this bad stuff happening? Remember that? And where are all these wonderful deeds that we hear about, that our fathers have told us about. The Lord brought you up out of Egypt. Where's that then? Visitor. Remember that from last week? Gideon's got quite the attitude. But this showed us that his fathers had recounted to him the things of God. He acknowledged where all the wonderful deeds that our fathers have told us about. This also goes to show us that Gideon would have heard, no doubt, the portion from Exodus as well. When Moses requests to see the Lord's glory, and God says to you, I'll show you my back. Because he says this, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God's presence as the angel of the Lord was very different from the white, hot, majestically radiant, extremely overpowering, unfiltered glory that God actually has, that if that glory was revealed to Gideon, unfiltered, not as the angel of the Lord, but in all his glory, Gideon would have melted like a wax figure in front of a blast furnace. And he knew this, and that's why he's afraid. He's thinking, okay, how does this work? I just, I just saw the angel. I know about the story about Moses and the rock. So when am I, am I about to die? Is this my last breath? How does this work? Five minutes? Ten minutes? I, I, I'm afraid I'm about to die. That's why the angel says to him, peace be to you, you're not going to die. In other words, you got the filtered version of me, the angel of the Lord version. That's the version that men can stand in front of and not die. You got that version. Peace be to you. In verse 24, Gideon responds in kind with a proper response to this, which is worship. Acknowledging that this act is proper. Take note that Gideon's hospitality changes into worship. At first, Gideon, after realizing, I'm in the presence of someone special, please stay here, let me go make you a meal, and I'll bring it back. You're special, and I'll show you the hospitality that we showed to special visitors. Now, it's completely changed from hospitality to worship in verse 24, because what's he doing? in verse 24? Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Why did he call it the Lord is peace? Because the Lord said to him, peace be to you. So he built an altar, gave it a name, the Lord is peace, and when the author was writing this, it was still there to that day. You could go see it. That's why he says, To this day, it still stands. The people who were going to be reading this book could go there and look at it. Now, I doubt it's still there now. This is about roughly 3,000 years ago. Doubt those rocks are still piled up now. But back then, he's saying, you can go look at it if you want. You don't take my word for it like Gideon didn't take God's word for it. The stones are still there. I could take you to them. Gideon's hospitality turned to worship. Why? because of God's revelation. Did you pick up on that? That's what changed everything for Gideon. God revealing himself to him is what convinced him of the truth. God revealed to Gideon who he truly was. Otherwise Gideon supposed he was just speaking to an ordinary man. It was God who acted to reveal more of himself to Gideon. And that's what made Gideon into a worshiper. That's what's gonna make you into a worshiper if you're not yet a worshiper. God has to reveal himself to you. Otherwise, you won't get there on your own. Man's heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Paul even says in Romans chapter one, I mean three rather, no one even seeks for God. We would not seek for God in and of ourselves. Now, we seek for something, yes, but in that seeking, we'll never actually attain to the knowledge of the one true God. We don't get that. We don't just say, I'm going to unlock that in myself because it's not in you. God must reveal himself to you, and once you're convinced by that, you will rightly turn into a worshiper. And that's what happened with Gideon. And the truth is, God's revealing himself to you now through his word. God uses the foolishness of my preaching to reveal himself. He's chosen to do this throughout the ages, according to Paul. He uses the foolishness of preaching, is what Paul says. And the truth is, you can't stay on the fence. He's revealing himself to you right now Right now, through this text, he's walking through this text with us right now and you must choose to either stay in your darkness or step into the light and breathe the free air that Jesus gives to those who step into that light. Now, how do you know if you've made this transition, though? How do you know if you've made the transition into the light? Are you in the light? Do you think you're in the light? How do you know if you're in the light? One word, worship, you start to worship God. What does that mean? You delight in him, you love him, you want to be around him, you want to be in his word, you want to pray to him, you want to simply love him. Immediately after this happens, And Gideon is convinced that he was in the presence of the Lord, and so he does what's appropriate. He builds an altar to the Lord, and he worships God, because that's the right response when we realize God's revealed himself to us. We naturally want to worship. And the truth is, here's the truth. Let me just stop right there, though. Even seething demons who hated Jesus with a Hate that you don't even know, they still understood their position when it came to Jesus. Jesus came to the man named Legion. What is your name? Legion, for we are many. Please don't torment us. Are you here to torment us before the time? They know there's a time of their torment. They know it's coming. Please cast us into the pigs. They even know their position when it comes to God Almighty. Seething demons who hate him. They still have to bow to him. And Jesus will come back one day and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will bow in so much love for him and some who hate him and are cursing him when he comes back. They can't stand his face. It just shines too bright and too perfect, and I hate it because I'm so dark. They'll still bow too. They won't be able to not bow even though they hate him. Immediately after this act of worship, which is proper when God reveals himself, God called Gideon to an act of obedience that would show everyone that the Lord is supreme. Because that's really what worship is in your life. You're showing that you believe God's supreme. And the act of obedience involved pulling down the idols of false gods and building up the worship of the one true God. Did you you pick up on that? pull down your father's idol, the the statue of Baal and the Asherah. What's the Asherah? It was usually made of wood. We don't know a lot about it. It was possibly uh, a female deity, a female false goddess as well, but there were two of them there, the statue of Baal and then this Asherah. Again, just false gods, but made of wood. But you may have picked up on the fact that Pulling down of the one of the gods, and then he says, and use that wood of those false gods to to build an altar and a sacrifice to me. Burn up those gods (laughs) and use that fire as worship to me. I love it. Uh, Gideon's worship of the one true God required Gideon tearing down any false god. Gideon's worship of the one true God required tearing down any false God. Why? Because they can't coexist. Can they? In fact, if you're truly devoted to the one true God, you will not allow anything that competes with him to exist. Anything that competes with the glory of the one true God must be torn down. But why is that? Because it's a lie. Anything that sets itself up in this world as better than God, or as equal with God, or as worthy of your attention, devotion, worthy to be admired, worthy of your affection, anything that sets itself up as better than God is false. It's a lie. It's a deception. It's a facade because it's concealing the unpleasant truth that it's actually empty. It's actually void of any real power to create any change in you that will ultimately better you. There's a lot of things in this world that set themselves up in front of you. This is very important. Please listen. There's a lot of things in this world that set themselves up in front of you as if they're worthy to be admired, worthy to be loved, worthy to have devotion given to them and promising at the same time, if you pay attention to me, follow me or give affection to me, you'll be happy and you'll be fulfilled. And that emptiness that you've been feeling, will go away. And it's a lie. If it's anything but God, if it's anything but God, it's a facade. You know what a facade is? Ever seen those old westerns long ago where they're walking through a town? Looks like an old western town. Those storefronts, that's all they were. It's not a store. It's called a facade. Why? You walk behind it, it's nothing, right? And you're walking through the marketplace of this world all the time, In the pilgrim's progress, it was called the Vanity Fair, right? And the Vanity Fair, pilgrim, I mean, Christian and his friend were, all these things that you can have, look, all these things you can have, and they're empty, And Christian said, We only buy the truth. And because of that, they killed his friend. This is all a, a deception. These idols were a deception, concealing an unpleasant truth that they were actually empty, powerless. Which reminds me of the book of 1 Samuel. Remember the statue of the false god Dagon? kept falling down in front of the ark of God when they were stored in the same room together. The ark of God was captured by the enemies of God and they stored it in the same room of worship with their false god, Dagon. And what they find the next morning? Dagon had fallen down in front of the ark of God and his hands broke off, representing that he was powerless to do anything. The hands represent what we can do set him back up. What happens the next day? He falls down again, face down, except this time he has no face. Why? Because his head broke off, showing that God had dealt a fatal blow to this false God. I love it. I love that section. I'm like, yes, God. God. Dagon's head broke off, representing the fatal blow that God ultimately dishes out to everything false that sets itself up as God's replacement. God is more powerful and he's better. Look at verse 25 and 26. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar there to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. First of all, I think it's tragic on Gideon's father's part that he has these idols at all, in light of verse 13 from last week verse 13 from last week, Gideon said to him, "'Please, my Lord, if the Lord's with us, "'why then has all this happened to us? "'And where all the wonderful deeds "'that our fathers recounted to us, "'saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt?' "'He acknowledged our fathers.'" Meaning father, grandfather, these people, our fathers have taught us things about the one true God. They've, they've, They've taught us the stories of the Bible, And I say it's sad because it's that lukewarm state that we're talking about, that that I was talking about earlier. It shows that Gideon's dad is a lot like unsaved religious Southerners. Isn't he? What do I mean? Well, his dad did the religious thing by telling his kiddos Bible stories. He did that, didn't he? Much like many Southern folks think that, And know that it's good to get your kiddos a children's picture Bible. So they know some of those Bible stories. That's a good thing to do. And it's also good to take your baby to get dedicated. Let's let's do that. That's a good thing to do. And it's also good to go to church every so often, especially Easter and Christmas. Don't ever miss those. Because grandma will get mad if we're not at those. And then let's also, you know, make sure that... You know, every so often you throw a 20 in the offering plate. But then daddy also lives like the world everywhere else. This isn't just dads. This isn't just the South. There's a lot of people all over the world who've mixed religiosity into their lives, but haven't purged the evil out of their lives. I've got an image because look at this picture I made. If we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, however, our speech, our entertainment, and our anxiety, and our thinking are just like the world's, then I doubt it, okay? I doubt that. I'm not talking about struggling with sin, not talking about that at all. Not standing up here saying, I never struggle with my speech in any way, shape, or form. I never, I never struggle with my entertainment in any way, shape, or form, nor with my anxiety, nor with my thinking. It's all pure as the driven snow. What's wrong with you, you bunch of losers? Get better. I'm not saying that. And I don't like sermons like that either. And I don't like people like that either. So we're on the same side, okay? We are. What I'm saying is this. What I'm saying is this. When people mix religiosity, some type of form of it, into their lives, but then also think, I can live like the world as well, and I'm still okay. That's what I'm talking about. If you say, if you, say you know, I'm, I have a respect for Jesus. I think the Bible is the word of God. And, you know, I, just, I think those things are good and you're at work and you're talking just like they are at work, you're laughing at all the dirty jokes they're laughing at, you're telling the dirty jokes they're telling and your speech is just as foul as theirs is. Something's wrong, you are a living contradiction. Secondly, entertainment. If you are consuming the same worldly filth that all your other unsaved friends are, horrible stuff that God hates, Full of horrible language, full of nudity, full of homosexuality, and you're just consuming it just like they are. Nothing's different about your forms of entertainment. You're a living contradiction if you also say you're a follower of Jesus. your anxiety. You're scared of all the same things the world's scared of. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this? What if this? Uh, we, can't, we can't be a missionary over there. What if we get malaria? We can't do this. What if I... What if, what if we run out of money? What about our 401k? What about this? What about that? And it's all the same thing as the world's anxious about. All your anxieties and fears are just like the world's. And you're thinking. You think just exactly like the world thinks. Well, why can't two men be together if they love each other? Why is that wrong? Why, why, can't, why can't she have an abortion if she's not ready right now financially? And Why? Why not? And also, you know, why why shouldn't I go into mounds of huge debt? If the bank's going to loan me this money, then why shouldn't I? Go, why shouldn't we have this really big, nice house and these really extremely expensive car payments that force both me and my wife to have to work full time and we're in debt up to our eyeballs? But you know. I've heard that that's what's going to make us happy, and and these you know we got to go on two or three vacations a year, and I, I really want a boat too, and it's all just like the world. What I'm saying is this: see, Gideon's father was teaching his children certain things about God and saying these things are true, but what's out what's right out in front of his dad's house? Two idols. You see, after Gideon pulled, I mean, after Gideon builds an altar of worship to God, God then expects him to begin pulling down worldly idols in his home. And really, shame on his father. And you know why it makes me so angry that his dad was like this? Because it reminds me a lot of me, too, in the past, before I got saved. Religious, grown up here in the South, walked the aisle, said the prayer when I was like, you know, eight or nine, got baptized, all that jazz. Lived like the devil from age 13 to 18. Would have told you, though, would have told you during those years, of course I'm going to heaven. God loves me. I got baptized. I got baptized. And then when I was 19 and God actually revealed himself to me and I responded accordingly with faith and repentance, that's when I really got saved. And that's when everything changed because I really came to know the one true God and really started to worship for the very first time. God expects Gideon to begin pulling down worldly idols in his life. Your devotion to God starts at home also. Did you see this? Where did he tell him to start pulling these idols down? His own house. Some of you need to hear that. I need to hear this. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. Because if it's not in your home, I doubt it's in your heart. If your devotion to God is not in your home, it's not in your heart. If your devotion to God is not in your home, it is not in your heart. And that's just the truth of it. And again, I don't mean in perfection. I mean in direction. None of us do this in perfection. That's why we need Jesus, okay? I used to work at a place where I was the only Christian, at least in that department where I was, the only one. And one of the workers one day said to another worker about me, something he didn't like about me, that he thought I did wrong, that I actually didn't do wrong, but he thought I did it wrong. He said, see, see, he's a sinner. And my friend told me that one day. He said, this is what he said about you. He said, see, he's a sinner. And I said to my friend, I said, of course I'm a sinner. That's why I need Jesus. <laughs> I never claimed to not be a sinner. I'm one of the worst ones there is, which is why I love Jesus so much, because he's forgiven me of so much. Are you kidding me? He thought i was saying I'm sinless because I said I was a Christian? no. I've told you guys before, you've got to be a loser to get in the club. That's the prerequisite. And so, if it's not in your home, it's not in your heart. Because if it's in your heart, it'll be in your home. True devotion to God. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said about Gideon having to do this, starting at his home. Really great quote again. Knowing Gideon was still afraid, God assigned him a task right at home to show him that he would see him through. After all, if we don't practice our faith at home, how can we practice it sincerely anyplace else? Gideon had to take his stand in his own village before he dared to face the enemy on the battlefield. Remember, God said, you're the man I'm gonna choose to attack the Gideons, I mean, to (laughs) attack the Gideons, to attack the Midianites as one man. Remember that? So he's gotta start at home. Will you obey me in small things first? Because some of us want to be powerful tools in the hand of God to fight against devils and demons and to advance the kingdom with fury. We want to do that, but we've got to start with those small things around our house first. (laughs) I want to be used by God in big ways too, but I also have to be devoted to those small things in my own home first that make for godliness. So we shouldn't be surprised that God's asking Gideon to pull down these idols, first of all. We shouldn't be surprised that he starts there. Why should we not be surprised that he starts there? Gideon worships, and God goes directly to pull down idols. Why should we also not be surprised by that? Though it makes perfect sense, because they're competitors. We shouldn't be surprised either because of Deuteronomy 12. He takes him back to the law of God, Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 3. This is part of the law. This is part of the Torah. This is part of the law of the Jewish people. These are the statutes and rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Verse 2, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars, dash to pieces their pillars, and burn their Asherim with fire. Asherim is plural for the word that we saw earlier, which is Asherah. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. So take note that God's not calling Gideon to, to do something new or something original. He's simply calling him back to the law of God. It's already been established as the standard. God will always call you back to the written word, always. If you're truly devoted and following the one true God, he'll always direct you back to his word. If you feel like you're following God, listen to this. This is a very provocative statement. If you feel like you're following God, but you're not walking in the word of God, you've created your own God. If you feel like you're following God, but you're not walking in the word of God, you've created your own God. And that's the truth of it. God will always call you back to his word because God can never separate himself from his word. He never has. He never will. David said this in Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your, worm is, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures Forever. God brings us back to his word because it's the authentic interpretation of reality, because it's the proper guideline for life, because it's the real source of all truth, and because it's the only fountain of life. Why would he send us anywhere else? In giving Gideon the command to bring down the idols, this is Gideon's first real stand on the truth. It is. It is isn't it? Let me end with this. It's his first declaration that he's chosen a side. It's his first proclamation that only God is God, isn't it? I mean, in conclusion, I mean, have you, have you done those things? Have, have, have you stood on the truth? Have you declared that you've chosen a side? Have you proclaimed with your Worship and obedience that you've chosen aside. Have you taken that stand made it public? That's that's really one reason why baptism is our first act of obedience, because it's a public declaration of your walk. You're showing everyone publicly, I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I've chosen a side. I'm proclaiming that only God is God. Gideon said, Where are the wonderful works our fathers have told us about? What Gideon's learning is something that God brings about. Sometimes God brings about those wonderful works through the obedience of his people when they finally and decisively choose a side. Amen? Bow with me. Father, we're grateful for this truth. What a powerful word, not from my lips, but from this text, Lord. What a powerful principle we see here, the importance of choosing a side and what choosing a side will actually look like. And Lord, I pray, asking, please, Lord, use this text this morning to not only draw sinners to yourself, but to also build up the saints. Advance your kingdom here on earth, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would now grant repentance for some and obedience for others. Pray this in your Son's perfect name. Amen.